Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Bino Line Media presents The History of Being Black. Welcome to another episode of The History of Being Black. I am Eunice Elliott, and as always, I am joined by some wonderful, dynamic Black person. And today is no different. I am joined today by Caress Clark. She's an alternative sentencing and mitigation specialist, as well as a therapist. So first things first, Caress, welcome to The History of Being Black. But tell us, what is an alternative sentencing and mitigation specialist? What does that mean and what do you do? Yeah, so an alternative sentencing and mitigation specialist, essentially it is a forensic social worker. What we do is we work with the courts, we work with lawyers to try to get clients who have mental illness or they are battling with substance abuse, we try to get them programs instead of jail time. So what we'll see in the courts a lot, especially with misdemeanor cases, with a misdemeanor case here in the state of Georgia, you can serve up to a year or a thousand dollar fine. So unfortunately, when you are homeless, if you are battling a mental ailment or you are have a substance addiction, you may get arrested multiple times on something minor like sleep in front of a bank um, because unfortunately we criminalize poverty. So for something as simple as sleep in front of a bank, you can spend up to a year in jail. So what my job is, is that we come in, we work with the lawyers. Instead, we try to get clients into programs. We try to get them housing. We try to get them income. We try to make sure we stop those recidivism rates and keep them from coming back into the jail and get them back set on a stable life in a way where their record won't be affected. That sounds like such a specialized area. How how did you come to work in that space? I would think that, honestly, most people aren't thinking about people who just need help more so than jail time or punishment, unless it's like a friend or a family member, and we know and understand their unique circumstances when they get arrested, and we would speak up on their behalf, but how do you make that a career? Like, how did you come to be in that such a unique space? Honestly, I kind of fell into it. I... Uh... Went to school, got my bachelor's in social work, and I got an internship with like DFACS. And so when I left there, uh, people would see court on Indeed. They would see court on my resume. And so a lot of, we were at that time, we were getting a lot of programs. We we're getting a lot of funding from the government to kind of create these kind of programs to stop recidivism rates. And they wanted mental health professionals in there. And so people would see that, see, I did the mental health track and automatically pull me in. I would actually be interviewing for all completely different jobs. And I would be at the interview and they go, uh-huh, uh-huh. So we see that you have experience speaking in court. I got another position if you're interested. So that just kind of kept happening. And I just fell in love with it along the way. And I just kept getting lucky where Wherever I move, I could always find a reentry job. I could always find mental health jobs that were associated with the courts, uh, associated with forensics. And because it is such a small field and uh, you really we don't really have a specialized degree for it yet. 
You know, you have people that go to school for mental health, but they don't really touch on the court. Even with social work, where we are big on incorporating mental health, but also social justice, advocacy, things such as that, you still don't have a lot of classes that focus on forensics. So what happens is if you get in one job, you kind of get to know everybody in the field very quickly. And it's kind of becomes like word of mouth where people will start up a program. They're like, oh, you know what? I work with Miss Clark. She was really, really good. And they already know you have the experience. And it kind of just builds like that. That is so interesting to me. So when you talk about recidivism, can you break down for people who may be listening that aren't necessarily familiar with that term, but uh, in understanding that term myself or what I understand about it, tell me about um, if there are efforts to cut down or break down recidivism, but then we also still have this school to prison pipeline and the systemic, you know, situation that keeps some of our people incarcerated. How do those two um, work together? Or, or, or can they work together? <laughs> they can work together. It's how we are doing them now working together. Eh, kind of. Um, unfortunately, right now, it's a lot of theatrics. Uh, we really have not built the system to do what we are saying that we want to do. But basically, with recidivism rates, what we are trying to do is stop the cycle of people going in and out of the prison system, the jail system. So what you have is a lot of times um, I have clients who... I have seen three times this year. So worked with them, got them in a program, they got out and then they were out maybe a month and then they're rearrested again and they serve maybe let's say six months. And then the judge agrees to my, um, the program, I got them in my plan get them in there, the AWOL after a week. And so with recidivism, we want to stop that. We want to say, okay, if you got in here, let's stop it. Let this be the last time we see you in jail. Let's set you up for you to be stable so you never have to come back here. Let you let this be a chance for you to be able to tell your story, inspire someone else so they never even have to go to jail. So that's really what we mean with recidivism rates. Um, and I say that it's half and half. Some of it's really theatrics just because um, we do things like we put somebody in a program. For example, let's say I'm working with someone that has a substance abuse problem, okay? And I put them in a program. Well, a part of my job is to educate my lawyers and also educate my judges. And sometimes they listen. Unfortunately, when it comes to things like social work, mental health, a lot of times people put us in the bottom of the totem pole when it comes to situations like being in court. So even though I'm the expert on this, this is what I got my bachelor's in, my master's in, this is what I've done for eight years. Sometimes you'll sit there in front of a judge, in front of a lawyer, you'll tell them these things and um, you're just a social worker. So for example, with someone with substance abuse, on average, it usually takes someone with a substance abuse problem seven times before they are clean. So if I have a client, I put them in a program, they AWOL, they do not graduate the program. The same judge sees them next time because usually what happens is they um, will let them out on a bond saying as long as you complete this program. Now, if you don't complete the program, they will put a warrant out. You could get rearrested and they'll just open back up that old case. Well, with this, they come back in and the judge might go, okay, well, Ms. Clark got you in a program. You were in that program for six months and then you had a dirty urine. You know what? No more programs. I'm sending you back to jail. Well, as a mental health provider, I'm trying to explain to the judge, okay, but that's not how substance abuse works. This is a person who started using when they were, I mean, I have people that started using heavy drugs as young as 10, 9, 8, 
Um, and you try to explain like, hey, this woman is 48 years old. She's been using it since she was eight. She has trauma upon trauma. This was her very first time ever trying to get clean. And she managed to stay clean for three whole months. Let's celebrate that. Uh, but you have judges who will just go, no, nope, that was your chance. And uh, then they throw, you know, the whole first recommended uh, recommended sentence at them. So it's kind of theatrics, whereas we try our best, but also, um, you know, we are working in an interdisciplinary system where uh, our code of ethics clash a lot. And so it's just really trying to do the best that you can with other people who have other opinions on how this should work. It sounds like you are more of the human side of the situation and where the judges and lawyers may be by the law, by the book. And like you said, you have to advocate on their behalf that let's celebrate this challenge that they almost overcame or you understand the rates of when people are, are having the relapses. And so I'm curious as to, you know, how much of that factors into the recidivism race factors into possibly the, um, uh, your client's mindset, you know, like, oh, they're just going to arrest me again. And maybe they don't try as much. It seems like a chicken or the egg type situation between what the judge or, or attorney would say and what the actual client is feeling in their own personal struggle in trying to get out of the system, out of that cycle. Oh, it definitely, definitely is. Um, we definitely, there's a part of our job that, um, we basically get up and we can tell a person's story. Usually this isn't done unless uh, a person is looking at heavy time and we know that there's going to be a prison sentence, but we're trying to get it reduced. Um, and for example, I had a coworker recently that had to get up and do this. And basically they gave the person's background story. I mean, we went and got records from when this person was in their thirties. We got records from when they were five years old in defects. And we were able to use those records to tell the story, to try to humanize them in front of the judge to say, yes, they did this thing. They admitted that they did this thing. This is why we are asking for leniency, Your Honor. And we went down and broke down like, hey, you know, this was a person who the system failed them very early on. OK, we are part of them being here as well. And you go through things like, okay, you know, maybe they went from foster home to foster home. Maybe they didn't have a strong kinship to any biological family. Maybe um, they had a lot of traumatic experiences and we are able to do that. And also you're able to tell about their triumphs in this side. And we work with the clients when we do these speeches because we want them to know what we're going to say. And uh, in my profession, at least with our agency, we only admit what the client is okay with. So I sometimes there's clients that I'll talk to and I'll straight up tell them like, hey, this is a program. Look, it's a two year long program, but you're looking at 10 years. You can do 10 years in the jail or you can do two years in this program. Um, they will make sure, and there are programs like this where they'll, when you graduate, they'll give you first month and set in, um, a deposit. They will help you find a job. They will let you stay there until you find a job and find an apartment. There are some places that uh, we have a place here in Georgia that actually helps with facial tattoo removal. If the clients decide that, you know, I got this when I was 13. Now I want to be a professional. I want to get this job. And this is holding me back. They actually pay for them to get their tattoos removed once they get close to graduation. And I've had clients straight up tell me, no, 
They say, no, you know, I'd rather take our chance. And we allow them to do that. And we say, okay, you know, this is about you. This is about getting you to where you want to be. And if you believe that you have a better chance just fighting without bringing up your mental health, without bringing up your history, we allow them to do that. I would imagine your work is so rewarding on the one hand and then also frustrating because like you said, if you know that this, a lot of times people don't know that they are a victim of the system. You know, they might be thinking, yeah, I was in defects at five and I got it. I I don't have any problems. Mm -hmm. Um, So I can only imagine how that must feel knowing that you could advocate for them for someone who doesn't realize they need an advocate. A lot of times we don't realize we're a sum of our parts. And if all our parts have been somewhat institutionalized, you kind of get what you get, right? Yeah, it can be very, very heartbreaking um, on the side of the clients, but also the side of the system. There is, um, you know, the law is very black and white. It's very, you did it, you didn't do it. You were supposed to, you weren't supposed to. And that's just not how life is. That is not how situations work out. Um, And there's a lot of times you are put in a very gray type of areas. Um, Because um, at one point I was working with the public defender's office at one point, um, sometimes I am dealing with people who did have a lot of trauma, but they did do something that was very also traumatic. And you're in this kind of sticky situation where you're like, okay, this is my client. This client had a lot of trauma. A lot of bad things were done to them. They had, you know, a hard deck thrown at them. But also this is someone who maybe murdered somebody. That's still my client as well. This might be someone who molested someone, someone underage. That is still my client as well. And I still have to integrate my code of ethics, also my job and what we're supposed to do. And uh, it, it definitely can leave you in a lot of a lot of gray areas. It could definitely be a very, very stressful thing to deal with at times. I would imagine so. It basically goes to the theory that hurt people hurt people. And so it is this yeah. vicious cycle. Um, that unfortunately a lot of our um, brothers and sisters end up in. Now, in addition to the work you do advocating for people who need alternative sentencing and programming outside of jail time, you also host the Overlooked podcast and you have a passion for talking about, I I think it's to me, at least it sounds like two ends of the spectrum, folks who are overly institutionalized and you're not going to get out of my sight before I arrest (laughs) you again. And people of color who come up missing that no one looks for. So that's what you focus on on the Overlook podcast, missing people of color, uh, especially young women, young girls and, and women, black women. Um, how? Tell me more about the mission of the podcast and why is it that we don't look for black folks the way we tend to look for? I'm, I live in Alabama and we're still talking about Natalie Holloway. What's the disconnect there? Um, there's so much disconnect with, uh, you know, just... The way that there's disconnect with the media and Black bodies in general regarding anything, Um, especially when it comes to our Black girls, there is this perception that when a Black girl goes missing, she ran away. She decided to. There's a perception that, well, you know, she probably met some guy. No one is thinking that, okay, he might be a pimp. He's 28 and she's 13. We don't really, the media doesn't like to tell that side of the story. And we get that a lot with uh, Black girls, but also with uh, Indigenous individuals as well. That is a huge thing uh, in their community as well. Right now, Black people make up 40% of those who are currently missing. And I remember telling this fact to a friend and a friend of mine was like, I 
are you sure? I never, I feel like I never hear about missing black folks. And I'm like, yeah, that's the problem. We're 40%, but you never hear about it. Like you say, you, everybody knows Natalie Holloway's name. Everybody mm-hmm. knows her name. Um, nobody knows Christian Muse. Christian Muse is an African-American male who went missing. Um, he was from D.C. area. His father, till this day, does everything he can to try to bring attention to it. And there are people in D.C. right now who have never heard of that case. And he's been missing for over 10 years now. Wow. So it's interesting because you, you say black bodies, even mm-hmm. in saying it in that way, it sounds still kind of like back in historical times or in slavery times that we were, were chattel, you know, mm-hmm. property of, of the black bodies and why there is little to no value associated. Mostly during slavery and after slavery, black bodies were just discarded and undervalued. For society reasons. So when we're looking at cases, uh, the most recent case with the the, the laundry case um, where the young lady was out vanning mm-hmm. with the boyfriend, um, you know, as much as I try not to learn about these cases because mm-hmm. I'm like, well, listen, you don't want to be callous because this is still a person and a family and a human. Um, but because of the lack of representation or, or looking for our, our Black um, people, you, you kind of feel like you kind of get a little apathy about it. Like, Oh, well, another missing white girl. And that's unfortunate because we don't really mean that. That's not what we mean when we say another missing white girl. Right. Right. I mean, I think it's because we know there's going to be effort put into finding this missing white woman. Mm -hmm. We know they might not they might never find her, but we know there's going to be effort put into it. We know we're going to hear about it. We know we're going to hear her name. There was a comedian. Oh, and I can, I wish I could remember which comedian it was, but there was a comedian. He had a joke that he used to do uh, a part of his stand up, And he was talking about uh, the guy that, is responsible for the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Um, I don't know if legally I can put it that way, but him. Uh, Jordan Van, I cannot remember. Vandersloot. Mm-hmm. And he, in his, in his joke, he goes, okay, everybody we know about Jordan and we know about Natalie Holloway and we know about the other girl and the crowd got quiet. He was like, you, you guys know about the other girl, right? And the crowd went like, yeah, or something like that. And he was like, um, but we know her name, right? The crowd was quiet. He's like, yeah, because I was a Hispanic woman. Same guy doing the same thing, but we recognize one, only one of the victims because she was white. She was pretty. And we know that that's how the media is going to spin it. And so kind of like you said, it's not that we are callous in a like, we don't care about this young woman because we don't want this young woman missing at all either. But it's just so we're so aware of the fact that if that was Brittany from down the street, besides her mama, her church group, besides us on the corner, who else is going to look for her? And how long are we going to keep looking for her? And even in the media coverage, there's even a difference between, as you mentioned, is she pretty or not? Is she mm-hmm. beautiful or not? Um, even And so even just in thinking about that, I mean, I think when we watch the news or we hear these stories of missing people, anybody, you know, it does affect you differently when you see yourself 
in that person or that that person had a young child or that person was a newlywed. It's all of these kind of human interest angles that tend to get attached to people who are not of color more so than people of color. They're going to show your mugshot or, mm-hmm. or your driver's license picture. And otherwise they'll show, you know, her dance recital or her being a ballerina or her wedding day. Because even while you were talking and you're talking and I, and I brought up Natalie Holloway and we know the perpetrator Vandersloot, or you think about a Scott and Lacey Peterson. Why would mm-hmm. I know these? names so well. I've never met these people, you know, but it's so many people right here in my own community who have met similar fates. And like you said, it's, uh, we don't know it and how much of it is the media's fault and how much of it is a community issue. Mm -hmm. That's the curiosity because we know people are missing in our community. Is it, is it on each of us? We like to talk about being the change for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So when you're doing your podcast, The Overlooked, and you're you're focusing on missing women of color or people of color specifically and how they are overlooked, how much of the onus falls on our own community in overlooking them as well? I think uh, we do have to take some ownership in that as well. I think we even have in our own community a certain perception of she probably ran away. We have a thing of being, you know, she just like her daddy. Uh, we have a thing of saying things like that and kind of dismissing the fact of like, okay, yeah, she's just like her daddy. Okay. But you know, dad also needed some help and we ignored that. You know, we're also dismissing mm. the fact that, okay, yeah, she may have ran away with this guy. Who is this? She's 13. She shouldn't be running away with no, with some guy, but we're not dismissing it as she's fast or anything. No, she's 13. And there's no reason why any guy should be taking her to run away anywhere. So that is definitely a thing in our community. I definitely have addressed the whole no snitching code in certain episodes Mm. because that's a big issue as well. Unfortunately, in a lot of the cases in our community, uh, there are certain cases where it's kind of one of those hint, hint, wink, wink things. You know, it kind of has something to do with this person. You kind of know this area has some involvement, but no one has any concrete proof. And it's like, okay, this person disappeared in front of a whole group of people. This person disappeared in the daytime. Someone saw something, but nobody wants to say anything. We had a disappearance. The young girl's name was Lashea Stein. We uh, actually see her on video walking across the street. It was late at night. Uh, I want to say it was like 1 a.m., 2 a.m. And they actually caught surveil- the last surveillance that we have of her. She, It seems like she had, may have snuck out her room because there was uh, like a flower pot upside down underneath her window. And the story goes that many people believe she was trafficked. Police got a lot of tips saying that they saw her in different parts of town, that she had a pimp and so forth. And throughout this case, you had different people come forth and say things like, yeah, look, there is a certain pimp. People know him. And people say, yeah, we're pretty sure he's with her. That's who I last saw with. And then the police were like, okay, well, let me take a statement. Uh-uh. All of a sudden, everybody would back out. Wow. Even the mom yeah. had people coming to her and revealing certain things. And then mom would be like, oh, okay, there was a young lady that came that said her boyfriend, who was a part of a gang, said, oh, yeah, 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 she's in this area with this person, blah, blah, blah. And when she told the mom, the mom, of course, is like, okay, yes, let's talk about it. And the boyfriend refused to ever bring it up again. And that's something that happens a lot in our community as well. Not even recognizing, no snitching was not ever meant 
to protect predators. That's not when no snitching came around. That's not what right. it was for. It was to protect us from crooked cops in the community. It was to protect the people that are actually fighting the street for our communities. It was it was about getting those people power. We're not going to sell our people out. But we somehow have taken it and now use it to protect those that are harming our community. It is really so much when you say if that little girl goes away or is missing, the thought is, oh, she's like her dad or she's a fast little girl. I think we very rarely... In our own communities, but especially in the media and the public at large, we don't allow Black girls to have any type of innocence. Mm -hmm. And so we will associate or project personality traits onto her because she danced a lot or because mm -hmm. of the way she dressed or, you know, and we sexualize young young people or, oh, she got a boyfriend or, you know, and mm -hmm. and but we don't see the same in other communities where they get to be little girls until they grow up. And I think that is an internal thing because I've heard people uh, who look like me have those conversations about fast little girls, even if we're talking about things like statutory rape and saying, oh, but she was mature. You yeah. know, and I'm like, well, they have these laws on the books because scientifically your brain has not developed before a certain actual chronological age, regardless of experience and exposure. You're still a child. Um, so when we're as we're wrapping up this episode and thinking about, like I said, the two angles that you're on as far as advocating for people who may already be in the system, but also highlighting people who are missing and and are and the system is not interested in finding, what can we do more of as a community to hashtag be the change? If someone is listening to this episode right now, what is it that we can personally do to to help solve some of the issue on either end of the scope of your expertise? Share, 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 share the information. What we find the most is that people don't know these people are missing. Uh, we have, there was a young woman, Monica Denise. Uh, she had been missing for, I think it was between 2002 to 2007. Uh, and she was in, I believe, in her 30s, 40s at the time that she went missing. She was alive and well in the same city. She went missing, Las Vegas. She was actually in care under guardianship of the state. She did not remember she suffered with schizophrenia. She had been off her medication for a long time, so she didn't remember her name. So her name was under a different name. The only reason she was found is because the state was filing for guardianship. And finally, someone was like, you know what, let's let's just look a little bit harder and happened to just go through missing person pages and found that she was a missing person. The biggest right. thing is we don't know. So sharing the information, listening to the information, if you're listening and you're sharing, especially if you're in the area, but even when you're not in that area, because trafficking is a big problem in America right now. It's very real. It's not those countries over there. It's us as well. Um, so mm -hmm. also be aware of, okay, she disappeared from Chicago does not mean she's not in Georgia. It does not mean she's not in California. Usually they take these girls away from areas they're familiar with. It's a part of the whole trafficking system of keeping them connected to their um, trafficker. Because if you take me out of my element, I don't know where I am. Where am I going to go? How am I going to eat? It's better than nothing. And so really sharing the information and not just with my podcast, but I also give links. I usually post um, on my website and you can go and read the blogs and I post where I got that information from. You can also share those links on things like Facebook, on Instagram with friends and family, because that's really how we end up solving this. Making sure the community has the knowledge. Police, they already have their tools and their tools are already limited. Really, a lot of the times when these 
cases are solved is someone in the community that saw something and called it in. It's someone in the community that remember a conversation they had that they thought was weird and they now listen to the story and realize it was connected. Things like that. And that is definitely something anyone who's listening, all of us can do is share those missing persons reports. Um, as you mentioned, you know, we don't know that a person is missing. And also I think we don't understand what a traffic person looks like. We kind of sometimes mm -hmm. have an idea of what we've seen in movies or TV shows and not realize that it could be someone you're interacting with that you don't realize is in a different state under a different name and not knowing how to get out. So I think that's a, a very powerful uh, suggestion for us to all to be the change. Chris, I, I think that you know, just in talking to you, it's like, I want to give you a hug <laughs> because in both in your areas of, of what you have chosen to pursue, you have um, definitely, um, I'm a very empathetic person. So it's like, I want to hug you because I'm sure you take in a lot of the, the traumas, but I appreciate you being on the front lines and affecting change in somebody's life. You know, I know every story is not a victory or every client you have you advocate for might not be a so-called victory, but to know that you're out there and that there are people like you out there actually is really comforting to know. So thank you so much for sharing your passion and your purpose with us. And hopefully you'll come back and talk to us some more here on the history of being Black. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I always like to get that on tape, Caress, and make sure when I call you again, you don't ignore me. I'll play it back that we have it on tape. <laughs> that she said she's coming back, y'all. So thank you for that. Thank you also for the hashtag be the change. Thank you guys for always listening. And until next time, please take care of yourselves. We'll see you on the next episode of The History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is hosted and produced by Eunice Elliott. Associate producer, Ariel Mancibo. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. And on IG and Twitter at History of Being Black. The History of Being Black podcast is a mean old lion media production. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.